So it's the season for graduation speeches. You know, those moving monologues that aim to inspire, often filled with the well-worn cliches, right? Reach for the stars, conquer your fears, strive after the impossible because you are special. You know what I mean, perhaps like me, you even gave one of those speeches in 1993. I was cluing you off to my high school speech. All right, that's all right. Okay. Some of you know what I mean, but it was actually 60 years ago. You didn't hear my high school speech. You perhaps heard John F. Kennedy or aware of John F. Kennedy. He gave such a speech at the commencement of American University. This was just months after the Cuban Missile Crisis and calling us to rise above our problems, calling us to rise above our differences, he opined and said, all the problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. Right? Limitless potential, unending opportunity, and the audience roared in applause, and in many ways, that set the stage for graduation speeches to come. And yet, friends, that optimism, that kind of optimism in self, optimism in institutions like faith and family and education and government, all that optimism has is, is been cratering. It's in steep decline. So religious affiliation has been falling steadily. Now over 30% affiliate as religiously non-affiliated. And if you saw the news this week, the Southern Baptist Convention saw the largest decline ever over a two-year period, over a million members out the doors. More numbers have left the Southern Baptist Convention than in the entire Methodist Church and Episcopalian Church in the last few years. Marriage rates have fallen by 40% since 2000. Uh, children, I should say childbearing, has fallen uh, by 20% since 1990. The percentage of people with more than three close friends, well, that percentage has doubled over the same uh, with fewer than three close friends, I should say. That percentage has doubled over the same time period. Workforce participation rate also down hugely from the days that Kennedy gave that speech. Friends, all of this, if you've been reading much of the news, has, has led to a kind of existential crisis of meaning. Ask people why they exist, and they'll simply shrug their shoulders they don't know. They don't have an answer more than any time in American history. Ask people, what would you be willing to die for? And similarly, you're likely to get a blank stare. They don't have an answer. And in that void, there is a sense of despair and hopelessness that prevails, leading to increased, increased rates of depression and suicide so I ask you this morning, if someone were to come to you and pose that same question, why do you exist, what would you say? What gives your life meaning? What gives your life purpose this morning? Well, friends, it's questions like this, admittedly pretty heavy questions, I understand, that actually bring us to the first verses in the book of Titus, the New Testament book of Titus. So let me invite you to turn there now to the book of Titus, which you can find if you're using one of the Red Bibles on page 998. And as you turn, just a bit of background on the book as we begin. So Titus is the third and final of, of Paul's three pastoral epistles, the first two being First and Second Timothy, 
And though these are letters, yes, of fraternal counsel between a pastor and his young protege, nonetheless, they are all fundamentally about our church life together, which is to say our Christian life together, which makes these letters immediately relevant right, for both you and for me. Now, Titus, unlike Timothy, is not introduced to us in the book of Acts. So what we know about the recipient Titus, we actually have to piece together from different places in the New Testament. We know from Galatians 2, for example, that Titus uh, was an uncircumcised Greek, and he had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. And Titus became something of a test case for the gospel And the question of whether or not one has to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. I.e., does one have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And Paul used Titus as exhibit A that no, that is not the case. And we know from multiple references in 2 Corinthians that that Titus was a critical co-laborer with Paul. So evidently he was deeply reliable. Paul sent him to Corinth, right, a church that had gone through tremendous difficulties And he sent them there to encourage the church in raising support and for the relief of the saints. And that way, you could say Titus was Paul's kind of hitman, or maybe better, his green beret, or his like spiritual Navy SEAL. He would dump Titus into those hardest and most difficult of circumstances, and he trusted Titus that he could get the work done. Now, as we'll see, Titus was just on the island of Crete, which is south of Greece, It's clear there are numerous churches there on the island, and yet they're floundering under false teaching and a lack of biblical leaders as in elders. And so Paul leaves Titus, apparently he was with him, he leaves him on Crete in order to deal with some unfinished business, right? Things left that are undone and need to be done. And so for a quick overview, chapter 1 is all about keeping the gospel central in the church's leadership in the form of biblically qualified elders. And then chapter 2 is about ensuring the gospel is central in the church's own fellowship, in their own community together, right, internally. And then chapter 3, we see how the gospel is central to the church's witness and mission externally. And it seems that as Titus moves through the book, he's moving out in ever larger and in increasing sort of concentric circles. So he starts in chapter one small, right? Very narrow with just the leaders and a focus on the leaders and the elders. And then he steps back and he gets a little larger and he speaks to the congregation as a whole. And he speaks to young men and and older men and young women and older women. And he speaks to the relationships together and slaves and masters. And then he steps out even further and he addresses the church and their living, and how that is meant to be a witness in the world. And the refrain that is repeated throughout the book is that gospel belief leads to gospel behavior. So if you can think of Titus as a duet. Now, my wife and I, we don't really sing together, at least not in public, uh, because that would be a pretty messy thing. But if you can imagine a kind of duet... Yeah, someone's agreeing over there. If you can imagine a kind of duet, you would have, that's the, the book of Titus, right? There's this, this two voices of belief and behavior, of doctrine and of deeds, of creed and conduct. And those things are inseparable. They necessarily go together. And so to summarize the book, perhaps we could summarize it this way. Sound teaching 
promotes sound living, which promotes gospel believing. So sound teaching promotes sound living, which promotes gospel believing. So with that, you got a bit of an overview of Titus. Let's dive in. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You can follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, friends, in in one sense, this letter begins like most ancient letters. So you have the author introducing himself as Paul, verse 1. He introduces and identifies the recipient, Titus, verse 4, offers a particular greeting, a greeting of grace and peace in verse 4, all very normal. And yet, apart from Romans, actually, this is the longest opening, the longest salutation, the longest greeting in any of the letters. And Paul spends a number of verses elaborating on his gospel ministry, and in doing so, he's already kind of tipping his hat to the major themes in the letter. Now, in verse 1, we learn who Paul is. He's what? He's a servant of God, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, we learn who Titus is. Titus is Paul's true child, right? My true child in a common faith. And so together, we're seeing that both Paul and Titus have this common faith. It's what unites them. And that word faith can sometimes refer to a subjective sense of belief, as in you've got to have faith. Or when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. But it can also refer to a kind of shared confession of Christian truth, as in Jude 3. Contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. And there, Jude, when he speaks of the faith, he's referring to a body of doctrine, to Christian truth claims. And that seems to be the sense that Paul's using faith here. The common faith is their common Christian confession that both Paul and Titus, that both of them hold in common. And in between verse 1 and verse 4, Paul is going to describe his ministry. And in doing so, he's not only explaining the purpose of his own ministry, but he's also providing Titus with a model of what his ministry is to look like, and I think ministry in every time and in every place. Because notice how the letter closes, the very end, in Titus 3, verse 15. Paul closes there with, grace be with you all. Grace be with you. You all, you all plural, as in Paul is not just writing to Titus singularly, he's writing with an eye toward all those congregations there in Crete. So think, while Paul is speaking predominantly to Timothy, he's kind of looking over Timothy's shoulder, and he's addressing the congregations in the background. And so what Paul has to say to Titus, he is also saying to us. I think if we were to summarize these verses, we might summarize them like this. Our common confession determines our common mission. Our common confession determines our common mission. 
And our points are just going to come straight from that summary statement. First, our common confession. Second, our common mission. So let's first think about our common confession. Paul opens by referring to himself again as a servant of God. It's actually the only time Paul refers to himself in this way in the New Testament. And that word for servant is literally slave. Now, you and I, no one wants to be slaves of anyone. Slavery is antithetical to everything you and I cherish and hold dear. Our notions of freedom and autonomy and personal rights. But notice Paul doesn't see this slavery to God as a burden, but rather as a blessing, as critical to his own understanding of himself and his identity. No, for across his body reads... Cross Paul's body reads, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. And Paul has the scars to prove it. No longer a slave to sin, Paul wonderfully understands himself rather as a slave to God and all that is good. But Christian friend, I just want you to see what's true of Paul ought to be similarly true of you. Paul was saved, we're going to see, he was saved to serve. And so too, if you're a Christian here this morning... You have been saved in order to serve. I wonder if that's how you think about your life. For what is a slave concerned about? Well, a slave is concerned about necessarily his master's business. A slave doesn't wake up and say, ah, you know, what do I feel like doing today? But rather, what does my master have for me today? A slave doesn't say, How will I spend my time? But rather, how does my master need me to spend my time? A slave doesn't say, how am I going to spend money that I really don't have, but is my master's money? Well, as the master desires me to spend it. From the moment he wakes until the moment he sleeps, the slave's primary concern and singular concern is his master's business. Now, I recognize when I mention the word slave, many of you are thinking sort of 19th century predominantly race-based kind of chattel slavery, which was actually not the kind of slavery in the New Testament, which doesn't mean it's all nice and pretty. It just means it didn't function in the same way. Often people voluntarily put themselves into slavery. Slavery was sometimes a, a process in which you could get ahead in society. Many great professions were filled by slaves. It was usually temporary. It only served for a number of years. Right? So there are lots of differences, and yet nonetheless, a slave was responsible to their master. So if you're a Christian, I wonder if that kind of thought process typifies you. Before you think, what do I want to do today? Do you ever ask, hey, what would God have me to do today? Before you think, how am I going to spend my money? Do you stop and think, how would God have me to use his money? Before you think, what will I do with my life or my career or this relationship or my retirement? You should be asking, what would God have me to do with the life he's given me or my career or this relationship, or this retirement. Because all of our life is meant to be offered up in a kind of devoted service. We've been saved to serve. 
But Paul's not just a slave of God. He also identifies himself as what? As an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word apostle can have a very specific and technical meaning, referring to those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and received a special commission by Christ to preach the gospel of Christ. So that would be the, the original disciples, also called apostles. You can go to Matthew 10. It would include Paul as well and his call on the Damascus Road, Acts 9. But it can also refer apostle more broadly and loosely to a sent one simply to a messenger, a representative of another. So there's an old biography of the famous missionary Adoniram Judson, and it's titled Adoniram Judson, Apostle to Burma. Well, not apostle in the technical sense, but apostle in the other sense in which the Bible uses the word. He was a messenger. He was a representative of Christ to the Burmese people, now known as Myanmar. I think Paul here likely uses that word in both senses. Yes, he's been uniquely commissioned by Christ. He's to preach the gospel. And we see in verse 3, right, that gospel's been entrusted to him by the command of God. And yet he also understands that he is a messenger. And so all he does is meant to represent Christ, to be a witness to Christ. Because that's what slaves do, right? They represent Jesus. Now, when I worked at Merrill Lynch, we had a, a very specific dress code. You had, a, had to have a dark suit with either a white or a blue shirt and a pretty simple tie. There were no points for creativity. Not at all. So I remember a good friend and a coworker of mine once came in to the office, and he was wearing a mint green shirt. I think he's like, it's summer, mint green, all right, I can get away with it, it's light. The boss looked at him and said, go home, change, come back when you have the right shirt. Which probably explains why all my shirts are still blue and white. (laughs) Point is, they wanted to present a particular image. Merrill Lynch was after one of what? Professionalism, competence, class, perhaps all those things. Which explains, again, well, a number of things. But we'll leave that aside. Point being, if you're a Christian, you also are to represent Jesus. Now, not finally by the clothes you wear, but by the conduct of your lives. So I just ask you, since all of us in Christ are sent as messengers and representatives of Christ, if we're in him, how are you repping Christ? How have you repped him this week, this year? Do your coworkers know you're a Christian? Would your coworkers be surprised to learn that you're a Christian? What about your classmates? What about your teammates? You could be 12 here this morning. You could be 21. How are you representing Jesus if you trust in Jesus to them? What is your life teaching them about Christ? How did you rep him even this week? And notice what Paul says about Timothy in verse 4. So jump down there. He refers to him as what? He refers, he's identified himself. And now he refers to Timothy as what is my true child, which is the same expression he'll use. Well, that's how he refers to Titus. Um, I'm going to, the pastoral epistles, I sometimes mix these guys up. We're in Titus, all right? He refers to Titus as my true child, which he also does with Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. And I think Paul, by calling Titus my true child, That means it's likely Titus was a convert of Paul's. 
And by calling him a true child, he is affirming Titus's public ministry there in Crete in order to build him up in contrast to the false teachers that were there in Crete. And, and together, Paul's saying that he and Titus share this common faith. They share the same hope, the same confession, the same doctrine, which is important given, as we'll see, that there are many false teachers promoting sort of Jewish heresies. And remember who Titus is. He's an uncircumcised Greek amongst these people. So Paul is saying, yeah, Titus may not be a biological child of Abraham, but he is nonetheless a true spiritual child of Abraham by faith. Titus may not have generational faith, and yet he has, Paul says, genuine faith, like the genuine article, the real deal, and that's what matters most, which is why both can know, verse 4, God as Father and Christ Jesus as Savior. So just notice how God and Christ bookend our verses. They open in verse 1, and it's how Paul wraps things up in verse 4, because God and Christ are meant to go together like hand and glove. Now, maybe you've come and you're under the impression this morning that you can know God, know something about God, maybe even have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Maybe you think Jesus was just one of many good teachers, but uniquely nothing, not, not the unique way to God, certainly. Maybe you think of him as some disruptive revolutionary, as many did. Or worse, maybe you think of him as sacrilegious, Right, as one who sort of punched above his weight class and made all kinds of statements about himself that couldn't possibly be true and that were offensive, that were even sacrilegious, which is how Paul, when he was Saul, would have thought about Jesus. It's how many of the Jews would have thought about Jesus. It's still how some today think about Jesus. But notice for Paul, you can't truly know God without knowing Christ. They just go together. You can't love God without loving Christ. You can't be in relationship with God without being in relationship with Christ. It's why Jesus says in John 14, 8, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. For I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or as I said, like hand and glove. Which means a lot of people can claim all they want to have God on their side but if they are not also with Jesus, God is not on their side. The two are therefore inseparably linked, Jesus and God. So this is the common confession that both Paul and Titus hold. But I want us to see, secondly, that it's, co- it's that common confession that leads then to a kind of common mission. That's going to turn us, secondly, to our second point, our common mission. Because, friends, who we are determines what we do. Who we are determines what we do. So the the Wall Street Journal had a a fascinating article this week about a Navy SEAL named Daniel Swift. Not to be confused with Daniel Shrift. Okay, Daniel Swift. And after multiple tours in Afghanistan, after fighting in Iraq and also in Yemen, and all of that sort of in the war on terror over years, he struggled to reintegrate back into civilian life. And as many will tell you, the the military, the U.S. military does a wonderful job about turning men into soldiers. 
It's turning those soldiers back into civilians that's the hard part. That's the difficult part. And that was true with, with Daniel Swift. He'd lost his marriage. He had lost his kids. Given some disputes, he was facing legal woes. And if convicted, he was going to be discharged from the Navy and from the SEALs and lose the ability to even carry a weapon. And all that shook him because being a warrior was all he had known. It's all he had known. It was who he was. And so what did he do? He actually went off grid. His fellow SEAL members never thought he would, but he did. He went off grid, and he was off grid for years, and apparently he was in Europe for a season, and then he was fighting poachers in Africa for a season, and then what happened? The Ukraine war broke out, and he was telling some friends that when he heard about the children suffering in Ukraine, it reminded him of his own children, and he knew what he had to do. He had to go fight. And so he went and he joined up with some elite Ukrainian forces and he led these clandestine raids across enemy lines and he quickly became known, infamous amongst the Ukrainian troops for his bravery and for the fact that he was often quite a bit crazy, right? He would take tasks that no one else would dare to do. He was known to go on these long runs and workouts right along enemy lines. Now you can read the article in the journal if you want to know how the story ends. I'll leave that with you. I'm not going to get into it now. You, you, some of you are moaning. I'm not, you're not going to win me over. I'm going to hold firm. My point is that Daniel Swift was a warrior. Who he, it's who he was, and therefore determined what he did, how he continued to fight. And friends, that ought to be true of us, who we are determining what we do. And Paul's saying if we're slaves of God who have been sent by God and we have a specific mission for God, we have a divine purpose. Paul understood that because of his identity, he was to have a particular ministry, a ministry that was to mark, again, Titus's and also our own. So look with me to verse 1. Paul says he's a slave and apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now, it's a bit hard to see in the English translation because it's all so packed and, and, uh, and dense, but Paul's actually outlining right there the threefold purpose that he understood for his own mission in life. And we're seeing again how his own identity determined that ministry. And what's the common mission that Paul shares with Titus and thus shares with us in this gospel work is he saying it's salvation, it's sanctification, and it's glorification, right? It's, it's those three things that Paul was about. That was the threefold purpose for his own life, which means, friend, if you're a Christian, right, members of UBC, you shouldn't have to leave here this morning or ever wake up and just wonder, what is my purpose? What is my mission in life? You don't have to wonder as you wake, does your life have any specific value or meaning? Because God has assigned it meaning and making you an image bearer, bearing his own image, and that that values you at incalculable worth. But he's also given a mission and a purpose. Something he doesn't just call you to do, but like Paul, he's going to equip you to do. And so as we think about this threefold purpose in Paul's ministry and in our own, I also just want to note to moms Right? Everything I'm about to say, it's true to you as well. 
right? In a world that doesn't value the work of mothers, would never see it as, a, as an appropriate vocation where mothers often feel guilty or embarrassed to say they're a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom, Paul's going to say everything about his mission can be true of your mission and your own home and in your own sphere. I want to show you what I mean. It's a bit hard to see again in Paul's tightly worded argument. But first he says his purpose and his mission is salvation. For he says he works for the faith, or rather for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He works for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of, as in, for the benefit of. See, he's noting right there his goal, his purpose, it's his mission. And what is that? It's to bring those whom God has chosen to saving faith. That's what he's saying. His goal and mission is first to bring those whom God has chosen to saving faith. And just notice how Paul sees no contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, so often people will talk of divine sovereignty or they'll talk only of of human agency and responsibility as if both those things can't simultaneously be true at the same time. Now, Colby noted that the, in remembering the faithful, that we're talking about Charles Spurgeon this morning. Well, Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled these two apparently incompatible truths, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And you may know his famous answer, there's no need to reconcile friends. He understood both these truths are not in opposition to one another. They actually serve one another. So Paul is giving his life for the salvation of others, and he can do so, he can give his life, and he can preach the gospel because he knows that that salvation of others is grounded in God's election. You're seeing human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And far from that being a disincentive for mission, for Paul, God's election provides, in fact, the most powerful incentive for mission and to take the gospel to people who had not heard it. Because God has a chosen people. As we're going to see, a people from eternity past that God has set apart for himself. And that knowledge is what fuels Paul in his ministry. It's exactly what we read of in Acts 18, if you remember the scene there, where Paul is facing much opposition in Corinth. And in the midst of that opposition, he was tempted to throw in the towel. And what did God say to him, Acts 18, 9? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Notice, God says, Paul, you're to preach because I still have people in this city that I have called and chosen and have not yet come to faith. And notice upon hearing that, Paul didn't say, great, if God's elected them, it doesn't matter what I do, he'll just go ahead and save them and then rush out of town. That's not what Paul does. What do we read? Paul stays and preaches for another year and a half. And that's his motivation. Sovereignty and responsibility, again, working as friends. And notice, too, that in Paul's view, those who have put their faith in Christ are therefore the continuation of the ancient people of God. For under the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, I should say, Israel was referred to as God's elect, God's chosen 
But now God's elect is not applied to Israel, but spiritual Israel, to those who are trusting in Christ. And I don't think it's by accident that Paul uses that term. Because I noted that in these verses, Paul's tipping his hat to the kind of things that are coming down the pipe. He's already beginning to raise some of the key issues that are faced there in Crete. And so that designation of the elect, I think, is is surely intended for the ears of the false teachers who have a decidedly Jewish flavor to their own ministry. And Paul right there is already beginning to take aim at his opponents. Because remember, while he's speaking to Timothy, he's looking over Timothy's shoulder, he's addressing false teachers and all of the congregation there. But just to to step back for a moment, if we have a common confession with Paul and with Titus, if we too are slaves of God and representatives of God, friend, when was the last time you shared the gospel? Can you remember the last time? Not that you just said something about Jesus, but actually talk to people or to someone about how they can be reconciled with God. How often do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for them daily? Only occasionally? Perhaps not at all. Do you have any people you're praying for who don't know Christ and you're praying that they come to know Christ? What I want you to see is being concerned for the salvation of others was not just unique to Paul, and it wasn't meant just to be unique to Titus or just to missionaries. It is to be the concern of every Christian because what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? He called his followers to what? To make disciples. That's what every Christian is to do. How are they to do that? By going to them, by preaching to them, and instructing them, and by seeing them baptized. That's what they're to do. Now, for some of us, it's going to mean taking the gospel across cultural and linguistic boundaries, yes. But friends, for most of us, that just means getting to know our neighbors, inviting them into our homes and into our lives that we'd have opportunity to speak of Christ. Or it means sharing more boldly with a classmate or a teammate maybe we've been reluctant to share with. Or it's risking that awkward conversation with a coworker, or your barber, or your stylist, or your dentist, right? I don't know, but any of these people. I was reminded one of the last times I was at the dentist, uh, I was talking to the hygienist, and it was one of those moments where she asked a question, and it was such a softball question, I'm like, there's no way as a Christian I can just ignore this. Like, I have to say something, and she knows I'm a pastor, so clearly she's probably expecting me to say something. And by God's grace, I was able to share the gospel with her, which I confess was a bit unnerving because there I am in the chair and she has every instrument of torture at her disposal. (laughs) I was at her mercy, but I understood she needed the grace and mercy of Christ. Paul's mission, like ours, was to bring those whom God has chosen to salvation, a salvation grounded in God's election. That's the motivation For if God has done the choosing, we can be confident he will do the persuading, which means all we've got to do is the sharing. That's it. But that's not all. right? His mission is not just for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but also, what does he say? Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, that expression, which accords with godliness, is somewhat woodenly rendered. But it's actually the same preposition that was used just before that translated for the sake of. 
again, right there, it's expressing purpose or result. So the, the CSB or the NIV read, their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. It's the knowledge of the truth which, again, leads or results in godliness. In other words, Paul's mission is not just to see the salvation of God's chosen people, but secondly, he wants to see their sanctification as well. He wants to see their growth in godliness, salvation and sanctification. That's his concern. And notice it's through the knowledge of the truth that godliness comes. It's through their knowledge of the truth that results in godliness. And that's just a theme that repeatedly occurs in Titus. My Christian friend, godliness does not just happen to us. Like the wrinkles on our faces or in other places, right? Or, or the gray hair or the lack thereof. Those things will just happen to us over time. Godliness doesn't just happen. No, we need instruction If we are to grow in grace and godliness, if we are to grow in sanctification, we're dependent upon proper instruction. We need to be grounded in the truth. And when Paul refers to the truth in the pastoral epistles, as he is right here, he's often referring simply, that's a shorthand way of referring to the gospel. And he's highlighting again a common theme that this right belief is inseparable from right behavior. So he's saying, if you want to live rightly, you have to believe rightly. And in believing rightly, we are led to live rightly. Again, that duet of deeds and doctrine, hand in hand. So Paul's stressing the importance of sound teaching for sound living. Now, as I've often noted, we can listen to sound teaching, and that doesn't necessarily mean sound living. Any number of us can be hypocrites, We can live contrary to what we know, and sadly, we do that too often. And yet, in the Bible, and as Paul makes so clear, there can be no sound living without sound teaching. We must have it. And it's why we always come back to the gospel, right? Because the gospel, Paul's saying, is not just that which saved you in the past. It's what continues to shape you even now in the present, right? Knowledge of who God is, of who we are, of what Christ has done for us, of the work that he promises to complete in us. And if we lose sight of that, what happens? We start to drift. And we know that the gospel is what got us into God's good graces, so to speak. But if we're not careful, we'll drift and think, yes, but if we're going to stay in God's good graces, that's up to us. That's up to us to secure. And so all of a sudden, we try to keep ourselves in God's good graces. And everything becomes about self-discipline and self-effort and self-dependence. And we stop looking to Christ. We stop resting in Christ And we seek to walk with Christ by our own strength and merely by our own will. And friends, that's why Paul's saying, hey, you got to watch that. You need to be led in the truth. You need to be constantly reminded of, of the gospel and you need to know God's word, which is why we need to be regularly in our Bibles and not just on our phones. It's why we need to be gathering as we are right now and as you are in churches and listening to sermons and some of you even dutifully taking notes. It's why we gather in life groups to discuss God's word together. It's why our youth and college ministries aren't merely focused on games and activities, but instruction in the word and in the gospel. Now that's not to say that college and youth ministry can't be fun. It should be. It should consist of both truth and truth 
expressed in joyful ways that are fun and encouraging and that include fellowship. Those things go hand in hand in the Bible. They're not opposite one another. But friends, it's why Erica Dennett taught in the Women's Institute yesterday morning on the doctrine of sin because we need instruction in this word. It's why men and women meet one-on-one to encourage one another in the faith. It's why we give books away and encourage members to increasingly have theological conversations with one another because it's that right believing that leads to right living. It's not so that our heads get bigger. It's so that our lives are lived out better. That's the desire. Because right behavior, again, is inseparable from right belief. So we're seeing Paul's mission is for salvation. It's for their sanctification. It is also for their glorification. His ministry is exercised, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. Now that preposition in right there is again expressing purpose. That's the third thing he's getting at for his ministry. He's been saved to serve by seeing others one to salvation, by second, seeing them grow in sanctification, and by third, again, pointing them to glorification, which is the hope of heaven. And everything that follows in verses two and three just modifies that phrase, the hope of eternal life. And we hear that word hope and what do we think? We think wish as a kind of cross your fingers and let's just see what happens kind of hope. But the kind of hope Paul's using, the word used here as it's used in the Bible, it's not a mere cross your fingers kind of wish. It's a confident expectation. It's a hope beyond the Razorbacks, you know, will win the third game with the Gamecocks today. It's beyond that. It's a hope that even goes beyond the expectation that the sun will rise tomorrow. It's a hope that is as fixed and as certain as God himself that these things are true. Now, I know many treat eternal life as some pie-in-the-sky fantasy, but not according to the Bible. It is a legitimate and real hope that Christians are meant to have. And people continue to look for the fountain of youth. They've been doing it for centuries. I even heard this week of of Disney has uh, a little society called Golden Oak, and it's the small and ritzy and exclusive community right in the park where houses filled with rooms with Mickey dolls and Finding Nemo sell for $20 million. All so that these adults can try to recreate and go back to their youth. All right, I find that a little perplexing, but nonetheless, if you're a Christian, I should say if you're not a Christian, let's start there. If you're not a Christian, I just wonder again, what are you living for? For Golden Oak, is is that what you're living for? Is what you're living for, can it promise you eternal life? Where there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no heartache. Where there's no broken bones, where there's no more breakups, where there's no more divorce, no more lost babies, no more doctor's visits, no more chemo treatments, no more funerals. Your promotion at work can't promise you that. Your wealth and success in in whatever venue of life, it cannot promise you that. No partner, certainly no pet, can promise you that. But friends, God can. Because every one of us will die. And only one has been raised to life and has reversed the curse. And that man is Jesus Christ. 
It's why he's called our Savior. Because he's the one who uniquely, as God's son, lived the perfect life you and I have chose not to live. And he died on the death as a sacrifice for sinners. And then he rose from the grave as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice so that everyone who sees their need to be reconciled to God can be as they turn from their sin and they look to Christ and they trust in him and they believe upon him, repenting and believing. And when we do that and when we are saved, we have the promise that we'll not only be sanctified, but we will one day be glorified. And if you're not a Christian, that is a hope that is not just to kind of cross your fingers and and maybe it'll happen. It is a certain expectation. And you can have that certainty this morning. But friends, we can be confident in eternal life because notice, what does Paul say? It's grounded what? In God's promise and in gospel proclamation. Paul says what? God never lies. Now sadly, lying is all too familiar to us. When we feel trapped, right, for self-protection, for self-preservation, we, we lie to, to guard our own image, to protect our brand. Lying may be second nature to us. It is contrary to God's nature. He cannot do it. So when he makes these promises, you can take them to the bank. They are absolutely sure and certain. And the promises he's made in eternity past, right before the ages began, Before they began, in eternity past, God promised an eternity future. He promised that we could have that sure and certain hope. Now, we all know the saying, all good things come to an end. We know that saying. But friend, I just want you to see, not so with God. Not so with the Christian. For in the gospel is held out unspeakable joy. Joy unending. And that's what's been manifested, verse 3, or better revealed in his word. And now through preaching, like you're hearing right now, that had first been entrusted to Paul, and thus as we get back to that preaching entrusted to Paul, we're right back where we started in verse 1 with Paul's own apostleship, with his role as a messenger. Friends, as we speak the gospel to others, eternity enters into history. And Christ is made present. So friends, we live in an age uh, desperately searching for identity. For an understanding of, of who we are and of what we're made for. And we as a society are clearly, I think, failing in that regard. Increasing numbers of people see life as devoid of meaning, of lacking in purpose. The shootings, the despair the number of people on antidepressants, the signs are all around us. And yet into this darkness, Paul begins with the light of the gospel. The grace and peace that have come to us through Christ Jesus, our own Savior. And thus, with a common confession, like Paul and Titus, we also can share in a common mission of this hope for the world. A divine purpose to see others saved, And to see them sanctified and to see them one day glorified. Paul knew exactly what was to give his life and Titus' life and our lives if we're Christians meeting. 
What about you? Can you say the same? Let's pray.